and welcome to mini episode 156 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I have one spooky story for you today, and it comes from the 22nd of November 2021. And story number one comes from Chris. I was fascinated by the paranormal when I was in my teens and 20s, and your back and forth exchanges remind me of the sort of discussions my friends and I had when we were young. I'm a bit of a skeptic, but I've had a few odd experiences and listening to your own experiences and those of other listeners make me think about the things that I have not thought about in years. Although I've never gone out of my way to investigate or explain these incidents, on more than one occasion, months or even years later, something has happened which seems to add credence to my own experiences. I'm in my mid-50s now. I was born in Wakefield in the late 60s but my parents moved us to a small Staffordshire town not far from Birmingham in 1970. My dad worked as a manager at a local factory and one of the perks of his job was accommodation. We were given a spacious first floor flat in a large Georgian townhouse, which had been converted into individual flats, two in the main building and a third in a more modern two-storey annex at the rear. At first, we lived in the first floor flat in the main part of the house, which had two very large bedrooms, a dining room, a living room, a kitchen, a bathroom, and a large hall with a set of double glass doors which led up a flight of stairs to an attic, with another set of rooms where my dad had a large hobby room. I was never comfortable in the attic, but I never saw or felt anything specific and a couple of years later, the ground floor flat became vacant and we moved downstairs. By modern standards, it was huge. Our friends used to claim we lived in a mansion. At the front of the house, the windows were enormous, multi-panelled sash affairs, which flanked an imposing double front door, with a window light above, and a knocker which resembled a heraldic dolphin. A short flight of stone steps ran up from the driveway to the door, and small shrubberies were located on either side of the steps, underneath the front windows. The rooms were very large, with high ceilings. Even the hall was 30 feet long and 10 feet wide, so ideal for Scalectric's layouts and cushion fights. At the time, the house was literally the last house on the street before the countryside started. So we had a neighbour to the right as you looked at the front of the house and a small holding where the farmer grew cabbages and raised geese ran behind the garden and along the left-hand side of the house. The garden was also huge, about the size of a football pitch. Once it had been laid out formally, with footpaths and terraces and an orchard, but it had not been tended for years and was overgrown like a piece of woodland. One side was flanked by a line of poplars taller than the house. The other had a mixture of conifers, an enormous yew tree, three concrete garages, then some bushes, more conifers and a truly massive horse chestnut. The gaps on both sides were filled with holly and tangled undergrowth and the drive opened up between low walls which terminated in brick pillars topped with carved stone fruit bowls. The driveway was circular with a large evergreen growing in the middle. Effectively the house was surrounded on all sides by mature trees and much of the intervening space was filled with unkempt shrubberies and tangled undergrowth. At night in the winter or when the weather was just wet or overcast. The effect could be somewhat gloomy and depressive. 
We lived in the house until shortly before my 15th birthday and for much of the time the other two flats were unoccupied so my two brothers and I and our friends had the run of the garden. We hacked our way through brambles and undergrowth uncovering lost footpaths, strange garden ornaments which resembled stone pillars and mushrooms. During the daytime the only danger you were likely to face was falling out of the tree you were climbing or meeting the geese when they escaped from the small holding. Trust me, geese are fierce and when you are small enough to be eye to eye with them you keep your distance or face the consequences. We were aware there were stories attached to the house but we didn't experience anything bad but then we rarely thought about it. It was where we lived and my abiding memory is of a happy time. Sometimes the cat did make us feel uncomfortable though. She would suddenly fixate on a spot in the room and stare for what seemed like an age. At other times she would apparently track something moving which nobody else could see. My mum used to joke that we were not alone but I think that unnerved us all a little. Then there were the footsteps in the flat above. Until my middle brother mentioned them I had assumed I was the only one who heard them. Nobody lived in the upstairs flat for most of the time we were there. It was occasionally used to house people from the factory but always on a short-term basis. Nevertheless, we regularly heard footsteps, usually when one of us was in the house alone, and that could be a little disconcerting. Nighttime was different. Not exactly frightening, but less comfortable. I hated getting up in the night to use the toilet, and I think I spent every night we were there under the duvet just in case. But that probably owed as much to my adolescent imagination as anything else. At some point before I went up to secondary school, I started sleepwalking. Fortunately for me, on an evening, my parents tended to watch TV in the lounge adjacent to the kitchen at the rear of the house, rather than in the sitting room at the front, so they managed to intercept me each time and shepherd me back to bed. One day my dad decided to see where I was going, and he was disturbed to find that I went straight through to the kitchen and started to unlock the back door. Concerned I might do this at some time when they were asleep or elsewhere in the house, they took to removing the key from the lock and hanging it on a nail out of my reach. They also told me about the sleepwalking. I don't think it bothered me much in itself, but the thought of waking up alone in the dark in that huge overgrown garden really did. There were parts of that garden that were so overgrown that it was dark and spooky in the daytime and at night time it was something else. I suspect we all experience things, half-glimpsed movements, shadows out of place and always the cat watching something we didn't see. As kids we didn't really notice most of the time and there was no feeling of malevolence. But looking back there are signs my parents were not always as nonchalant as they made out. My dad refused to discuss the possibility of the supernatural but he did not like the cat's antics one bit. My mum was more open to the idea and always said if the cat didn't seem to be worried we should not be either. But on nights when my dad worked late mum would often let me stay up to watch TV past my bedtime and we sat in the living room at the front of the house closest to the front door and just opposite our bedroom where my brother slept. With hindsight I wonder if I got to stay up and watch Starsky and Hutch or the Dukes of Hazzard because mum was feeling spooked and was uncomfortable on her own. There are three specific incidents from our time at the house which stick with me. 
one creepy, one downright scary, and one which was strangely comforting. The creepy one was my decision to get to the bottom of the footsteps once and for all. As usual, I was home alone when I heard them. It was a Saturday morning, and mum and dad had gone shopping taking my younger brothers with them. At twelve, I was old enough to stay home if I wanted. It was quiet, and suddenly I heard the footsteps again. They passed over my head, crossed the hall, and stopped at the far side of the living room. I judged that they had stopped right by the window, and if anyone was up there, they would be looking out over the drive. So I let myself out of the front door and stared up at the upstairs window. I couldn't see anything but dark window panes and reflections of the sky. I certainly didn't see anyone or anything staring back at me. In a moment of bravado, I went back inside, opened the drawer where I knew my dad kept a set of keys for the upstairs flat. I took them and went back outside. I looked at the front windows again but I couldn't see anything, so I went around the side of the house, up the double flight of stairs and let myself in. It was both familiar and strange. It was how I remembered it, but empty of furniture, and somehow it felt smaller. I went through the flat room by room, but I saw and felt nothing until I reached the bedroom I'd shared with my brothers when we were little. As I stood looking out of the window, I suddenly got the feeling I was being watched. I spun around, but there was nobody there and nothing amiss. But my feeling of disquiet grew. I walked back through the flat to the landing, where the staircase went up to the attic. By now I was so uncomfortable I felt sick. The feeling of being watched was so strong my nerve broke and I literally fled, not daring to look back. I pulled the door shut behind me and ran down the stairs. I let myself back into our flat downstairs. I was shaking as I tried to calm myself down. I heard the footsteps retracing their path from the front of the house passing over my head, back towards the rear of the house. To say it scared the living daylights out of me is an understatement. I put the keys back in the drawer and I never ventured upstairs again. The scary incident took place a few years earlier in the garden at night. It probably goes without saying that nothing could normally have persuaded me to venture outside at night, but I was brought up to be honest, and when my dad asked me if I'd put my bike away, I told him the truth. I hadn't. Dad told me to go get it and put it away in the garage. I was filled with dread and foreboding. It wasn't as though I had left it near the house. It was nearly at the far end of the garden. And to get it, I was going to have to negotiate some of the darkest and most overgrown parts of the garden. I put it off as long as I dared, but eventually Dad lost his temper and told me to just go and do it. It was dark but there was enough moonlight to see by. I had tried to persuade my brother to come with me, but he wasn't having any of it, so I had to go out on my own. My route took me out of the back door and down a footpath lined with shrubs and tall, uncooked grass. Now dry and dead, with dried seed heads which rustled as I passed. At the point where the path branched right, I carried on and then left the formal path which disappeared lost under overgrown bushes and weeds and pushing aside overhanging branches, stepped up a low bank and headed down a well-trodden path made by my brothers and I towards the orchard at the bottom of the garden. My bike was exactly where I expected, on its side, 
under the tall pine where an old motorcycle tire was suspended on a rope as kind of a swing. This was a spot where we spent a lot of time in daylight. It was a clearing in the undergrowth with a shallow pit where we dug holes and fought battles with our collection of airfix plastic soldiers. It was as innocuous a place as you could wish for in the daylight, but at night it felt strange and sinister. I grabbed the bike and stood up, trying not to look at anything but the bike. My nerves were totally shot, and I had the skin-crawling feeling that I was being watched. There was something in the orchard, though, something pale, almost shining among the trees. I could see it in my peripheral vision, and I tried so hard not to look. I wanted to turn the bike around and run away, but I couldn't stop myself. I looked into the trees and there was something or someone standing there looking back at me. I dropped my bike and I ran. Dad asked me if I'd found my bike. I told him I had. I didn't elaborate and he didn't ask me if I'd put it away. I retrieved the bike in the morning and put it away in the garage. What did I see? At the time, I thought it was a woman. A woman dressed in a dark, long skirt. A white blouse with puffed sleeves. And a wide-brimmed hat secured on her piled hair with a gauzy scarf. In the crook of her arm, she carried a shallow basket. I don't recall anything as specific as a face. It was just an impression of a woman and a style of dress and I didn't hang around long enough to get a better look. The comforting incident followed the death of our eldest cat. She was a beautiful smoky grey colour with a thick fluffy coat like a Persian and instead of the usual flattened face she had a small and delicate conventional cat face. She was a pretty little cat and the first pet I ever knew. I loved that cat so much and she was the most gentle and tolerant creature a child could have wished for. Strangely, where dogs are concerned, she was quite the opposite. She became an uncontrolled ball of spitting fury and would take on any dog daring to stray into her territory. Having raked them across the nose, she would then chase them out of the garden and down the road until she was sure they got the message. She lived to be quite old. My parents adopted her as a mature stray several years before I was born and I was 14 when they made the heartbreaking decision to have her put down. By then, she had failing kidneys and was crippled by arthritis and her quality of life must have been pretty poor. She spent most of her time in the corner of the kitchen on top of the oil-fired boiler which provided heating. It was always warm there and her blanket was a permanent fixture. I noticed she was missing when I came down from school one day and then my mum told me they had brought her to the vet to put her down because she'd become so ill. I understood but I was gutted and I felt miserable and ashamed it had taken me a whole day to notice her absence. We had two other cats by this time, a stray who had adopted us and one of the kittens she'd been carrying when we took her in. That night when I went to bed one of the cats followed me into my bedroom and jumped up onto the bed. I made room and settled down to go to sleep. I could hear the sound of the cat having a proper wash and brush up and then I felt the familiar weight as she climbed onto my legs. Like the well-trained human I was and still am, I shifted position and lay flat so the cat could get comfortable and she settled down, curled up, purring across my knees. 
I lay there as long as I could, feeling the weight of the cat on my knees and the warmth of her body through the covers. Eventually it was just too uncomfortable and I knew I was going to have to move her if I was going to get to sleep. I apologised for having to do so and I sat up and reached out to ease her off my legs. As I did so, the purring abruptly ceased and my hand touched the bedclothes, cool and smooth with no cat and not even a warm depression to show one might have been there. I sat in the darkness, feeling a mixture of emotions but no fear. I knew who had visited me and I felt sure that she had visited my room one last time to say goodbye. The sceptic in me could answer all of my experiences with a logical explanation. The house was old, it had a reputation and an overgrown garden which could appear dark and oppressive especially at night. I was a youngster with an overactive imagination and the sound of floorboards shifting as they warmed or cooled could easily have sounded like footsteps. A child falling asleep could dream of a visit from a dead cat and in a befuddled half-conscious state not be able to distinguish on waking between dream and reality. As an adult, I was trained to be a fraud investigator. I learned just how bad human beings are as witnesses, how little we actually really see and how much our unconscious mind fills in order to complete the picture. So did I really see a woman in the orchard or did the moonlight merely illuminate a piece of pale tree bark and my frightened adolescent brain did the rest? I really don't know. But there was one other thing which prevents me from being entirely convinced I imagined it all. My mum had had her hair done by a visiting hairdresser. This seemed to be quite normal in the 70s. His name was Peter, and he was unusual in a couple of ways. He was openly gay at a time when the nation was not exactly known for being tolerant, and he was extremely short. My brothers and I were fascinated by his height, as he was an adult, but he was slightly shorter than me, and only a fraction taller than my next brother. We all liked Peter. He was chatty and funny and he had the knack of putting you at ease and getting you laughing within moments. One day, after he had cut and styled my mum's hair, he was engaged in giving us all a quick trim when he suddenly stopped and asked me if I'd ever seen anything in the house. I asked what he meant and he told me he cut the hair of another client who lived in the village where he went to primary school, about a mile further out of town. He explained that he had mentioned in conversation that he would be coming to our house and described it, as it was a little out of the ordinary. To his surprise, his elderly client said he knew the house well, as he had lived there as a boy, but he had seemed reluctant to talk about it. When Peter had asked him about it, he simply told him to ask if we had ever seen anything unusual. Mum knew about my encounter in the garden, and so she encouraged me to tell the tale which I duly did. Peter was intrigued, but I told it straight, pretty much as I have here, and tried not to embroider the story, and press me as he might, that was all there was to tell. It was a while before Peter saw his other client again, and a while after that before he visited us, but when he did, he told us the elderly man simply said, Ah, he saw her too. Then he had refused to discuss it further. When we moved to a modern semi in a suburban housing estate, it was a bit of a shock. The rooms were so small in comparison to what we had known. 
but overnight I discovered the pleasure of falling asleep without burying myself under the duvet. There was no need. I could visit the bathroom in the dark without any sense of dread, and it was strange to feel so relaxed. It was like a weight I didn't know I was carrying had suddenly been lifted, and it was a few years before I had another weird encounter, and even then it was by proxy. My first serious girlfriend lived in Birmingham, so there was a deal of travelling when we visited each other as neither of us drove at the time. We were together 15 years, bought a house and had a child together, so it was a serious relationship and the travelling was worth it. But it became clear that she was uncomfortable using our local railway station, and especially so if I left her to catch the train and did not wait with her, which sometimes happened if Dad had given us a lift down. I knew my girlfriend believed she was sensitive to the supernatural, and some of the stories she reluctantly shared were far scarier than my own. She firmly believed that if you encountered a spirit, you were best not to acknowledge it unless you absolutely had to. Her mum, a no-nonsense Jamaican woman, who had experienced her own encounters with Duppy, made it very clear you don't acknowledge them, interfere with them, investigate them, or talk about them. Nothing in short which might give them power. When I pressed my girlfriend, she reluctantly told me she dreaded being left on the station platform alone at night because she saw spirits there. She studiously ignored them, but she was very aware of their presence. It was the same couple every time. They were dressed in dated clothing and most strangely, they were only visible from the waist up. From then on, I always waited with her and she always avoided looking at one end of the platform although I never saw or felt anything there myself. Sometimes, though, she would grip my hand tightly and her body would stiffen, and then I suspect she knew they were there, although she refused to tell me and never did anything to indicate her awareness. I think this as much as anything drove us both to pass our driving tests as soon as possible, and that indirectly led to my last three experiences. The first time I saw something while I was driving, was the only time my girlfriend and I ever experienced something odd at the same time. We no longer had to worry about the railway station as we both had cars and we took it in turns to do the driving. One evening as I was driving her home, we passed through the village of Lee Marston. It was a route I liked as it avoided the monotony of the motorway. It was late autumn and nearly 10pm, so very dark. This probably would have been in 91 or 92, so long before I owned my first mobile phone, and whilst it had been raining, it was a clear night. Once through the village proper, we turned onto Ham's Lane, past the last old-fashioned lamppost, and headed for the sharp left-hand bend a couple of hundred yards further ahead. As we approached the bend, a bank of mist slowly rolled out of the hedge ahead of us and spread across the road, right on the bend, and just as I was braking and changing down to second gear to negotiate the turn, someone stepped off the verge straight in front of the car. My headlamps illuminated a pair of long male legs in tight-fitting grey trousers and boots, distinct and clear amongst the swirling mist. I stood on the brakes waiting for the inevitable thump and managed to stop halfway around the bend. We sat in silence for a moment, then I asked, Did you see that? My girlfriend answered, yes. Did we hit him? How could I miss him? He was right in front of the car. For a moment, she said nothing, 
and then she asked me if I wanted to go out and check. Hell no, I didn't want to get out and check. There was no impact, no sound, no bump, nothing but the squeal of my tyres as I did an emergency stop. We were both spooked. By now the hair was standing on the back of my neck and down both my arms. No, I said. I don't want to get out. She said nothing, so I asked, Did you feel a bump? She said she didn't, and I asked if she thought we hit anything. Again, she said no. I put the car into gear and we drove on. I studiously avoided looking in the mirror as we drove away, and I asked her what she had seen. She just said, You know what it was. When I dropped her home, I checked the car. There wasn't a mark on it, nothing to indicate we hit anything, let alone a man. Besides, if we had hit someone, they would have ended up on the bonnet and at the point of impact, those legs just disappeared. As far as I was concerned, that was it. It was done. My girlfriend refused to talk about it anyway, and I was already half persuaded by the leave well enough alone advice. Strangely, it was my girlfriend who brought it up again, maybe two years later, when she phoned me at work and asked if I could put the radio on. I couldn't because we didn't even have one in the office. After work, she told me why she called. They had been listening to a local radio station in the kitchen where she worked, and the presenter had invited people to call in with their ghost stories. As she worked and half listened, she became aware that one of the stories was eerily familiar. A caller had described driving his van through Lee Marston one early morning while it was still dark. As he approached the sharp bend on Ham's Lane, a swirl of mist had spilled out onto the road in front of him and he had distinctly seen a pair of legs illuminated by his headlamps as he rounded the corner. He had braked hard, but with no chance of stopping, had jumped out of the vehicle to see how badly the man was hurt. He found himself standing alone on the empty road with no sign of anyone else having been there. Ham's Lane leads to the site of the old Ham's Hall power station, now an industrial estate, called Jacko Watton. That name held no significance to me at all until quite recently, when someone told me that Jack O'Watton was a local highwayman. It occurs to me that a sharp, almost 90-degree bend in the road might be a good place to step out of the bushes and halt a coach as it slowed to negotiate the turn. I make no claims, and in the best tradition of not getting involved, I've not investigated or staked out the spot. I've driven that way since but it was literally years before I took the route in the dark again. My next encounter was much more recent, around 2010. My girlfriend and I bought a house, had a child, split up and agreed to be friendly and kind to each other to raise our child by the same rules, whichever household he was at, and to make sure he grew up in as stable and normal a circumstance as we could manage. My son would have been around 10 at the time of this event and I used to go and see him twice a week after work. One night we went to swimming lessons. The other night I took him to beavers, cubs and then scouts. This encounter took place after one such visit, and strangely, it happened within a few hundred yards of the roundabout, which leads to the Jacko Watton Business Park. On my route home, I passed through the village of Water Orton and turned left onto the A446 at the traffic lights. I then accelerated towards a stretch of dual carriageway and flicked on my main beams. 
My headlamps illuminated a tramp in the left-hand lane directly in front of me. He was wearing a long olive drab coat and he had an old-fashioned rucksack on his back. He was bent over and trudging up the incline. I swerved into the other lane to drive past him, cursing him for being on the wrong side of the road and myself for not having seen him until it was almost too late. I drove on, my nerves still jangling from how close I'd been to hitting him. As I approached the roundabout by the Jack O'Watton estate, I dipped my headlamps again as it is well lit, slowed to check no cars were coming, and then I accelerated across the second exit towards the motorway and flipped my main beam back on. The tramp was there again, right in front of me. The same coat, the same rucksack, the same weary trudge. I swerved around him again, only this time I was thoroughly spooked and drove all the way home with every hair on my neck and arm standing erect. In an odd twist, earlier this year I was talking to my younger brother and we were swapping anecdotes and banter when I offered to tell him a slightly different story, one I had not told him before. Halfway through the tale of the tramp, he stopped me and finished it off for me. When I asked how he knew what happened, he told me the exact same thing had happened to him and a friend just a few miles from my encounter, but at the time, they'd put it down to overindulgence in a certain questionable substance and laughed it off. My final story, and by now you'll probably be grateful to read those words, concerns a cryptid. It is a short story and took place about five years ago. My partner used to live in Leicester, and for a long time complications with our kids, her ex and financial arrangements prevented our living together. So once again I found myself travelling often, frequently late at night. On this occasion it was a dark evening and I was travelling towards Leicester on an unlit stretch of country road between Market Bosworth and New Bold Verdon. Something came up out of the left-hand side ditch and crossed the road ahead of me. It should have been a dog. At that size, it must surely have been a dog. My brain tried to make it into a dog. But as the headlamp silhouetted it, it paused for a moment and turned its head to look directly at me. The light reflected back from its eyes for a moment, then it padded across the road and down into the opposite ditch and disappeared. However hard I tried to make that silhouette be a dog, it just wasn't. If I had to identify it, I'd say it was a black leopard. There is another story where something happened later which made me think I was not the only person to see it. I went to pick up a Chinese takeaway just down the road from my partner's home. While I was waiting, I flicked through a copy of the Leicester Mercury and found myself reading the letters page. To my surprise, and no little delight, one of the letters said something along these lines. What a pity planning permission has been given to build houses on the fields by Newbold Verdon. Where will the panther live now? It was after this incident I invested in a dashcam, but needless to say, I've seen nothing odd since. Everything included in these pages is true to the best of my recollection, but some events took place more than 40 years ago, so time and the foibles of memory are bound to have taken a toll. But I've tried to be as matter-of-fact and true to the events as possible. Chris, what a bunch of stories. So let's start with the first one. Let's start with the house that you lived in, that house that was split into flats. That house sounds amazing. It sounds like every kid's dream. 
like I spent my childhood years living in the countryside, climbing trees, building dens, all that stuff with like me and my cousins and my siblings. And honestly, we had such a ball. Like we had such a good time. It was perfectly safe or at least it felt perfectly safe. We just spent all of our time outside. And I can just imagine that that, that like childhood joy of running around in that garden, cutting things down, digging holes. Oh, it's just amazing. And it sounds like what you were hearing, the footsteps above, was almost like an energy that was repeating itself through time. So walking down the corridor, looking out the window upstairs and then walking back again. I wonder, is it, was that energy the same energy as the woman who you saw in the garden? Because if that woman was carrying a shallow basket, it sounds like she was picking apples, picking berries, doing something especially if that part of the garden used to be an orchard. Again, it sounds like that energy repeating itself. And maybe it was her, like maybe she's actually just pretty innocuous. I mean, either way, it's scary, innocuous or not, whatever the intention is, it it is scary to see an apparition in the middle of the night. Isn't it funny that as parents, you forget how scary things were as a child? So when you're an adult and you say to a kid, oh, go in the dark there and collect that bike from the bottom of the scary garden and bring it into the garage. And you totally forget that as a child, you you too probably would have been like, I don't want to fucking go down into the garden in the middle of the night. I don't know what's out there in the dark. I kind of like for you that the story was later validated by Peter and the old gentleman whose hair he was cutting. Like, I like that that old gentleman had said, oh, yeah, I saw that old woman, too. So your fear and your experience was validated later on. I mean, I love the cat story. I love a cat. Cats are amazing. I love the idea of a cat coming back. This is such a prolonged episode of an animal coming back and making themselves known. Like we often hear stories where people will hear the padding of paws or they'll hear, you know, the jingle of a chain or a uh, a collar, whatever it is. But this is such a prolonged instance of the cat getting onto the bed, you shifting around to move and let the cat be comfortable because we all know cats are our overlords. So we have to be uncomfortable to make them comfortable And then to realise, oh, there's actually no cat there at all. Like, it's a lot. But I think it's quite sweet that animals come to say goodbye. I do like that. I love the story of driving along and seeing the legs in the swirl of mist. I mean, I don't love it because it must have been really horrific to think that you hit another human being or to think even that you were going to hit another human being must be so horrible and traumatic. We've all, anybody who drives has had a near miss at some point. And it's the worst feeling when you think, oh my God, if something had been slightly different, I, that person could have hit me or I could have hit them or whatever it was. Or, you know, if I was a second later or a second earlier, like those are all really scary experiences. And there are just so many stories of roads, stretches of roads from all over the world that are said to be haunted or cursed or weird things happen where you have phantom hitchhikers or whatever it is. And I just think it's amazing that so many people are having these experiences on roads. Like it's pretty, it's just wild. And I want to dive a bit into your ABC experience, which is Alien Big Cats. And I do think there's probably more to these stories than meets the eye. So a lot of times when people talk about Alien Big Cat encounters, a lot of a lot of kind of diehard skeptics will be like, no, it's just a big domestic cat. And I read a story recently about a person who grew up, I think it was in Scotland, and they were out, they were out playing 
and they suddenly felt this, you know, really intense feeling of I am in danger and I'm about to get hurt and they legged it home. That was fine. Never figured out what it was. And then a couple of days later, they were out in their garden and looked out across the fields and they saw what they perceived to be a, a huge black cat, something like a panther. And they were thinking, what the heck is that? And then there was a report of a panther that had gone missing from a local zoo or something, whatever it was. Um, and they, they, the whole point of their story was that those instincts are really important for keeping us alive, basically. They believed that that instinctual feeling of I am in danger was that they were being hunted by this big creature, this big cat. And I think there are a lot more people who own big cats than we realise. Even in the UK, I know we've obviously had Tiger King, which has kind of opened people's eyes to the world of owning big cats. But I think in the UK, people do it too. I think there are sometimes big cats that, that get out and possibly roam around. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you so much to Chris for sending in your wonderful and beautifully written story. It was a joy to read. Remember, the last stories come from the 22nd of November, 2021. If you would like to know anything about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are desperate for more content, you can access tons of extra content for either $5 a month or $2 a month. And you also get every single mini episode and main episode ad free by signing up to patreon.com forward slash Stories. And on that note, I shall see you next time.